and welcome to the Nosy Fox Podcast with me, Natasha Murta. Each episode will be an interview with someone that I find interesting and has a story to tell that I believe is worth sharing. Some of the people I'll be talking to are people that I know, but some are strangers that for one reason or another, I wanted to get to know. This is a podcast about people and storytelling, two of my favorite things. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy. Life seems to be moving faster than ever. We live in a cashless, tap-only, face recognition world. More robots, more machines, more online and more click and collect. Spoilt with technology, we now want everything on demand. Dating, food, bookings, shopping. It's all at the end of our fingertips, or should I say our screens. However, there are pockets of this country where you can feel like you've gone back in time where things haven't changed. There are towns and villages, nestled into fjords, valleys and mountain ranges, where small shops have remained within the family that first opened them. There are islands off the west coast, where children still have to commute to the mainland each week to go to school. And then there are farmers that work on the same land that they grew up on, taking over from their fathers to keep the farm going. Some of the farmers in the west of Ireland have never left, nor have they ever changed the way in which they work the land. The rural farmers of the west of Ireland are unique, and they truly are the last of their likes. Future generations won't have men and women like them. In 2019, I interviewed 10 different farmers, asking them all about their life growing up and why they never left. We spoke about family, the farms the things that made them happy, and friends loved and lost. This week's episode of the Nosy Fox podcast will tell the story of five different farmers from County Mayo in the west of Ireland. The stories you will hear in this episode are written by me based on interviews I held with each of the farmers. The first story in this episode is about John Tiernan of Doc McKeown in County Mayo. We are standing in John Tiernan's field in Doc McKeown Mayo and the wind is pushing hard against our bodies. His ten suckler cows bow their heads behind him as they tuck into the hay he has shoveled into the feeder. I thought that was it. I was finally going to die after everything that had happened. I knew beating cancer was too much good luck. I was going to die from vomiting up all of the blood in my body and my family would find me dead and my tractor still running. John says this as he picks up fallen hay, adding it to the feeder. John was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin lymphoma 20 years ago and he was told he would be lucky to live another five years. He tells me this as his beloved cows gather around us. This might be hard for you to believe, But each and every one of these cows has a different personality, he says with a smile. These animals don't know what it's like to be hit with a stick, because I don't believe in that. They respond to my voice, and that is all I could ask from these beasts. On the 10th of April 1998, as the Good Friday Agreement was being signed, John was going into surgery across the road in an attempt to save his life. 
John is now 71 and has five children and seven grandchildren, all of whom live on the same road as him and his wife. The cancer really affected my family, John says. They didn't cope well with the news. I hold everything together, you see. My wife needs me, my children still need me, and I am now a grandfather to so many children. It would have been very hard, so when I got through that, it was great for all of us. John talks about his cancer very openly, like he has allowed it to become a part of who he is today. It wasn't too long after the cancer had left his body that he fell sick again, but this time it was very unexpected and sudden. John was driving his tractor when he felt an awful pain in his stomach, followed by an intense feeling of needing to get sick. He started projectile vomiting blood, so much so that he thought he was going to bleed to death. He rang his son, John Paul, told him to find him by the tractor and call an ambulance. By the time John Paul got there, John was weak and breathing heavily whilst on his hands and knees in blood-covered grass. While we were on our way to Castlebar Hospital, I was sure I was going to die. But if I had died there and then, I would have been okay with it, because the cancer took away all of my fear when it left my body. It was the only good thing about that sickness. If you survive it, you no longer have any fear, he said. John had burst a blood vessel below his esophagus, which would kill most. People around here say I'm like a cat with nine lives, but I always tell them that I went through my nine lives years ago, but the Lord keeps throwing me more. John has since devoted a lot of his time to Mayo Cancer Support, specifically in the Rock Rose House in Castlebar, a sanctuary for anyone who is affected by the sickness. Someone with cancer or even a family member of someone with cancer, can go to the Rock Rose House and seek counselling, treatment, advice or simply a place to sit and reflect. I asked John why it is called the Rock Rose House, and he said, The Rock Rose is a flower that survives through tough conditions. You can see it sprouting out of the rocks here in Dock McKeown Beach. No matter the wind, rain or storm, that flower grows and battles through it, and every year it comes back and flowers. It perseveres and carries on. I think to myself that John appears to be a rock rose himself. John Tiernan is just one of the few farmers who occupy the land out in Mayo, specifically Doc McKeown, a land that is unforgiving and harsh, rocky and at times flooded and bogged. It is notoriously difficult terrain to farm, but he has been here all of his life and this land was passed down to him from his father and John will pass it on to one of his sons. A lot of the people around here often call this road the Tiernan Road because two of my children have built houses beside mine, you see. He points along the road that cuts through his fields. The people who live out here in the West are different to other families in that we don't like to stray too far from where we have come. We like to stick together. We like our children to go off, but we like them to come back, he tells me. There is something distinctly different about the people of Mayo, and their unmistakable nature and spirit differs from that of Irish people more familiar with city life. They are resilient, loyal, 
and fiercely proud of their family and land. You can see it in their weathered faces and their tough hands. It's hard going on the body, John says, but I like to think of all the lovely fresh sea air I get every day. That has to count for something. He continues to shovel hay out into the feeder as the cows munch and sway off one another in a movement that shows they are content. After John has fed his cows, he will walk up the road towards his house for his tea, but not before he stops in on Magella, his daughter, who has just had her third child. Tomorrow, John will be up as the dawn chorus begins, feeding his sheep that graze on the other side of the beach at Doc McKeown. Isn't that a lovely thing, he says, to be able to say that my morning commute will be driving my tractor along the sand as the sun rises and pours light onto Clare Island. The farmers of Mayo have a very strong connection with nature, something they have always had since they came to this part of the country some 9,000 years ago, when they began as hunter-gatherers. They love the mountains and the sea. They love the bog and the wind. They speak of blue skies and pouring rain with the same affection. The first Mayo farmers who cultivated the land, kept domestic animals and grew cereal crops thousands of years ago are the same farmers as today. They have the same work ethic, spirit and relationship with the land, but unfortunately will not be here forever, not in the same way. These farmers are the last of their likes. This next story is about a farmer named Podrick McHale. The evening cow feed is one of the last jobs for many farmers and it usually occurs somewhere between four and five, shortly followed by their tea. Somewhere along the road that leads towards Runa Pier, where the ferry to Clare Island departs, lies a field that has been left to grow wild. The hedges have grown over the barbed wire fencing and become hosts to a number of brambles and gorse bushes. The gate into the field has become detached from the hinge and now is just propped up and tied with an old fraying blue rope. Inside is one brown cow, belonging to farmer Podrick Mihail. She doesn't have a name, he says as he looks over his shoulder to the cow who knows it is feeding time and hasn't removed her eyes from Podrick. How can I name a cow that I will one day betray? It wouldn't be right to give her a name. Unlike John Tiernan, Podrick lives alone in a cottage in Loch Dew, about two kilometres south of the field. At 71 years of age, he has never been married and never had children. He wears old black wellies with paint stains on them, thin grey trousers that look like old suit pants, and a sleeveless vest that looks like it has had numerous owners. It's how we all are out here, sure the women all left us, the nurses and doctors, They left to help in the bigger cities or even overseas, and we had to stay here and grow what we could on the land. But they never came back. The women, they never came back. 
He looks away from me as he repeats those last words. Podrick has another couple of cows, which he has in another field on the other side of Westport. The land was his uncle's and it was passed on to him when he died of cancer. Podrick tells me he doesn't mind the commute over there because it gives him a good excuse to stop in the bookies and bet on a few horses. There's money in racing. Them horses are money. Have you ever been to Florida? His eyes light up. Podrick tells me about the heat of Florida on his skin, how it's too cold and wet out here in the West, and that Florida has great weather. He tells me that he loves Miami. He said it's great fun, and everyone there has loads of money. He talks about Kentucky and Chicago with wide eyes and enthusiasm. He comes back to the heat and how much he loves it, how it can never be too hot, but then he repeats that it's too cold here. He talks about the way of life in the South, the sport of the horse racing, and how you could make thousands on it. He talks about the fried food, the women, and jumping into lakes. He then talks about Las Vegas and Nevada. It is only when Podrick starts talking about his travels and smiling at the memories that I notice he has nearly no teeth. All of a sudden, this apparent docile farmer became this wild traveller who roamed the southern states of America, chasing horses, money and the odd woman. After feeding his cow, Podrick walks towards his dirty black saloon ford, which has strings and bits of hay poking out of the closed boot. I went out to America when I was in my twenties, and the memories are something of great joy for me when I am alone at home in the evenings, Podrick says as he opens the car door, which reveals a similar untamed nature to that of his field. He tells me he will go home and put something in the microwave for his tea, and then go to bed. I wouldn't go through the effort of peeling and chopping vegetables when it is just me living in the cottage. I am happy with my petrol station carvery. He smiles and gets into his car. It can be a lonely life for a single farmer in the west of Ireland, especially when you are as rural as Pordrig. He cannot walk to the village and have a pint and talk to people, and Westward is a 30-minute drive away. Cooking for one can be hard to put effort into, Podrick said that he believes cancer is more prominent in the west of Ireland because they don't actually eat well. He said that farmers like him will often get something for the microwave and that will be that. Podrick does not have a son to take over his land and that is why he does not have a farm. He only buys and sells his cows, looking after them until they are ready for the slaughterhouse. Austin O'Malley is the oldest man living in Doc McKeown, and he too is unmarried and without children. He lives alone in the same cottage that he was born and raised in and that four generations of O'Malley's lived. The line will stop when Austin dies, as there is nobody to take over the small farm that remains out the back of the house. 
He tells me that the council will take possession of his home and farm and that they will try to pass it on to someone who is willing to take on the task. But he doesn't seem too concerned with the future of his land. The cottage is small and dark and there is only a front door, a porch door and a door to the bathroom. The kitchen is the first room you walk into and it seems to be where Austin spends most of his time. An old cream aga has become home to a collection of black and white photographs which Austin tells me are members of his family, most of whom are now dead. A leather chair sits beside the aga, which he says is where he spends most of his evenings, listening to music or the radio. I will turn 79 on March 29th, Brexit Day, making me the oldest man in the area since Father Pat died his piercing blue eyes appearing whiter than before as I noticed the cataracts in both. I left school at the age of 14 and I felt I had to stay here and work on the farm, helping my mother and father. I was the youngest child and the others had left for the States. It was my responsibility and it's what God chose for me to do, he says. There is a framed picture of Jesus Christ on the wall with a candle light bulb glowing red beneath it. I notice it is the only light that's on in the cottage. You'll have to forgive me and look at me when you are talking. I cannot hear too well now and I don't like to wear my hearing aids when I'm at home. He looks at the little dish on the kitchen table where they sit. I ask Austin how his health is and he tells me that he is failing. He turns and looks out the window towards Clare Island, which is visible on the horizon. On the wall behind me are a number of old electronics, which Austin sees me looking at. He begins to tell me that he was looking for an electronic radio that he could link up to his old stereo system, pointing to the VCR, a black box he has stacked on top of the television. A friend of his from his church told him that he had an old electronic radio that Austin could have, so he came around to the cottage one day and installed the system. One of the things I love the most in this world is great jazz music. He slowly gets up and walks over to the radio where a little remote is sitting. He walks back to his chair, sits down and turns it on. All of a sudden, music blasted through the house engulfing the one silent kitchen we sat in, filling each room with explosions of trumpet and saxophone. I begin to laugh with joy, but also at the startling volume of the music. When I look at him, he is sitting with his eyes closed, smiling and seemingly content. He then turns it off. It's a wonderful thing, the radio, especially for a man like me, who doesn't always have someone to talk to or listen to. It's great company. He adds. Austin wants to show me something. He disappears into another room and when he returns he is holding something that looks like a piece of art you would have on the mantelpiece. However, it is a lifetime achievement award and the name on the plaque is Father Pat O'Malley. Father Pat was a priest, a missionary, an academic and a hero to hundreds of people in Malawi. He was also Austin's neighbour his whole life and a very, very dear friend. 
Father Pat died on March 20th, 2017, at the age of 86, after a life that was devoted to helping others. He lectured and assisted prisoners trapped under the regime of Dr Hastings Banda, who ruled Malawi for almost 30 years, Austin begins. Father Pat was out there for just over 20 years, serving these people and offering them help until he was deported, shortly after becoming very ill. He would always tell you it was malaria that got him sick, but there were rumours he was poisoned by people that wanted him out of Malawi. His good faith was not welcomed by all, but Father Pat never spoke of it. It was malaria, he would say. Austin shook his head and looked at the award in his hands. When Father Pat died, Malawi people that lived in Ireland who had heard of him and what he did travelled to the west to Lewisburg Church where the funeral was held, Austin tells me. When his coffin was being carried out of the church, they started to sing in traditional Malawi song and it was one of the most beautiful things I have ever seen in my entire life. He was an incredible man. Austin's blue eyes are full of tears and they begin to gently roll down his cheeks and onto his lap. He then hands the award to me. The beautiful piece of cut glass reads, In honour of Podrigo Mali, Lifetime Achievement and it sits on a beautiful piece of varnished wood. Austin then begins to tell me about the piece of wood. The wood is black oak and is over 5,000 years old. I went down to Runap here one day after a big storm, and under the turf bog, all of this black oak was exposed. I chose this piece, cleaned it up, and varnished it. And this is what that is. A piece of treasure from the land where a treasured man was born and has now died. Austin had a special place in his heart for Podrigo Mali. You could see it in his eyes as he spoke of this missionary and all that he did. They talk about the people that live out here in these parts as being a people of their own. Austin continues. And that is true. We have different lives to those in other parts of the country. But Father Pat was different again. He was a saint and a saviour and a true man of God. The Dark Oak Wood Award, now trembling in Austin's hands. A farmer will often work 80 hours a week and most will be up at 4am. They have their dinner in the mornings and their tea in the evening, which is usually just a sandwich. Their lives and schedules are very different to those of a person living in a city. Family life is very important, but sometimes a farmer can miss all of the first steps. The next story in this episode is about Richard Austin. It was the first time my son Dara was in a play, Richard tells me. It was a musical, and he had a part where he played the flute. He was extremely excited. I was sitting there in the audience with my wife Lorena, constantly looking at my watch and praying he would come out before I had to leave. And then I stood up in the middle of the performance, before he'd even come out on stage, 
and I left. I had to go home and cut the grass. Richard Austin and his wife Lorena have a farm just outside Lewisburg in Mayo called The Colony, where they keep their 65 Montbilliard cows. Lorena, who is from a town in northern Spain, loves the lifestyle they have out here, especially since having their two children. But for Richard, he has found the changes in farming hard to keep up with, and it often means he misses out on special moments with the family. I have been working on this very farm since I was 19. My uncle taught me everything, he says as he shows me around the grounds of the farm. Back then, things were a lot easier because we just had two fields, one to keep the cows in during the day and one for the night. But because supermarkets want to keep prices low on beef and milk, I have had to work a lot harder for the same amount of money. Richard works alone throughout the year, apart from in June and July and some weekends, when he can afford to employ a young lad to help him work the machinery. To try and save costs and cut out the middleman, he has expanded the farm and does a lot of the production himself, but this extra effort often comes at the cost of his personal life. When Richard worked on the farm with his uncle, they only had 23 suckler cows, which made it easier as there was less stages involved between the cow and the end product. But since he has taken over the farm, he has changed it significantly. Now he uses Montbelliard cows, originally from France, because they are a good production cow that sustain themselves well, but this doesn't mean that it makes his workload lighter. Because I now have to work harder, I need a cow that can produce more and sustain themselves better. In 2014, each of my cows produced 555 kg of milk solids, which was amazing. He tells me this as his cows graze in the field behind him. If Richard hadn't left his son's play that evening to cut the grass, he wouldn't have had the opportunity to do so for another five days because of expected rain. It would have then delayed the fodder which he needs to feed the cows to get the milk. Every single step is so important, he tells me. If you miss something, you could ruin an entire season for yourself. The pressure is huge. Richard farms dairy and a small amount of beef. The milk he gets from his Montbelliard cows lasts better than the milk you get from suckler cows. They also fit in better to the general economy of farming because their offspring are valuable for beef. He tells me that the workload on his farm requires two but that it only gives an income for one, and this situation will only get worse. The farm is very impressive, with a lot of heavy machinery visible. Looking at it, you would never think that only one man works here full-time. We make all of our own silage, winter fodder, and we spread our own slurry, and that is because the contractors are limited around here. That creates more work, and to be honest, I would rather I was just a normal dairy farmer that didn't have to work all of this machinery, but I don't have a choice. Richard looks up at a large cylinder that stands tall behind him. Richard has had to expand his dairy farm because the contractors are not around when he needs them. By doing it himself, he has more control over the production, and it means there aren't any delays. However, it does mean more labour. Richard was born into farming, 
growing up in County Meath on his mother's family farm and then moving here to help his uncle. Going to New York to work in building, like many of his cousins did, was never going to be on the cards. But things are different now, Richard says. Farming has changed. You're constantly expanding and pushing to keep up with the prices and production, but there's only so far that you can go. It is changing and not always for the better. In the case of dairy farming, it seems to be a race to the bottom. We are chasing efficiencies all the time, Richard says with a sigh. The Irish government set a goal in 2016 of making 50% more milk by 2020, but Richard tells me that the target has already been hit and exceeded nationally, and that has created stress in the environment. This kind of mass production means farmers like Richard are forced to expand, changing the family farm structure. According to the Irish Farmers Association Dairy Fact Sheet, small-scale average farms used to be 40 to 50 cows, and in 2017, it went up to 80. This now means Richard is considered a small-scale family farm, which is far from what it looks like today. More milk is more money for the government, Richard tells me. More milk to process is more jobs. Everyone is winning apart from the farmer because we are told to meet these demands while the price is always going lower. So we are working harder for the same amount of money as we were 30 years ago. Richard says this as he leans against the windowsill of his kitchen. Not only was the price of milk the same 30 years ago as it is today, but calves were making more money then than they are now. Farmers are constantly being pushed, their limits being met, broken and expanded. It's hard to maintain this land through the winter months, Richard says. It gets so wet and the sea air kills my grass, which challenges my father each year. The days are short and cold, and my kids are in bed when I get up, and in school when I get home. As Richard and I are talking outside the front of his house, I notice the painted and varnished pebbles that line the steps up to his front door. One is a ladybird, one is a sheep, and one has their family name on it. And I think of him having to leave his son's play to go and cut the grass. Despite all of this, Richard remains positive about the future of farming. There will always be a place for farming because people will always need to be fed, he says. For now, it is paying the bills and keeping everything ticking along, but he is aware that in 10 or 15 years, this may not be the case. His son is showing interest in the farm, but Richard and Lorena want the children to have a choice whether or not they want to get involved. The colony farm is west of Lewisburg, surrounded by beautiful lush green fields and close enough to the sea to hear the waves. The farmhouse, which was once a small modest cottage, is now a three-storey home. Austin and Lorena nearly tripled the size of the original house when their family started to grow. Near to their home flows a river which eventually meets the sea. Crossing the river is a clapper bridge, complete with 37 arches, all of which are still standing. The bridge dates back to the 1840s, when a Protestant evangelist colony was set up beside the river near Austin and Lorena's farm. This is where the name The Colony came from.
Richard tells me that he and Lorena are worried at times about their future and how much longer they can sustain this farm. But all of these worries go away shortly because there is one thing that they are certain of and that's what this upbringing is giving their children. Our children won't be afraid to get dirty and they won't be afraid of animals, Richard tells me as we walk down his driveway. This life is hard, but it's precious and I wouldn't have it any other way. (laughs) 